every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 17th of August. Coming up, we have the latest business and finance headlines and the best discussion on those stories in one of Hong Kong's most listened to financial podcasts. This is the original Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, minutes from the Federal Reserve's last two-day meeting in July show policymakers concerned about the pace of inflation and indicating more rate hikes could be necessary in the future unless conditions change. The minutes showed officials unanimously backing the 25 basis point rate hike and policymakers stressed that there are upside risks to inflation that could warrant further monetary tightening. However, some members expressed some uncertainty over the extent of transmission lags, raising caution against over-tightening. The decline in new home prices in China accelerated in July with smaller lower-tier cities suffering the sharpest falls. Average new home prices in China's 70 major cities fell 0.1% year-on-year in July after edging up 0.1% in the previous month. It was the fifth month of decline so far this year. New home prices declined 2.5% month-on-month on a seasonally adjusted annualised basis. Third and fourth tier cities registered drops of 3.9% and 3.3% respectively. JP Morgan has raised its global emerging markets corporate high yield default forecast, largely due to rising contagion fears in China's property sector from a possible country garden default. JP Morgan raised its Asia high yield default rate forecast to 10% from 4.1%. However, that figure drops to just 1% if China property is excluded. And JP Morgan expects China property to account for nearly 40% of all default volumes in 2023. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And discussing the latest developments in the oil markets is Vandela Hari, founder of Vander Insights. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks fell for a second day after minutes from the Fed's July meeting released Wednesday stressed that there are upside risks to inflation that could warrant a prolonged period of restrictive monetary policy or even another rate hike. The S&P 500 dipped 0.8%, closing at 4,404. The Dow dropped 181 points or half a percent to end at 34,766. The Nasdaq Composite declined 1.2%, ending the day at 13,475. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury rose past the 4.25% mark on Wednesday as markets continue to worry about prolonged periods of restrictive monetary policy. The 10-year yield settled four basis points higher at 4.26%. That's its highest level since June 2008, just months before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which then ushered in 15 years of low interest rates. The dollar index rose to above 103.5 on Wednesday, heading for its highest level in six weeks after the Fed minutes struck a hawkish tone. The US dollar Japanese yen hit peaks of 146.4, rising above the 145.92 level that saw intervention by the Japanese Ministry of Finance last September. It ended the session in New York half a percent weaker at 146.25 yen to the US dollar. 
And the PBOC on Wednesday moved again to boost fragile sentiments with a stronger-than-expected reference rate for the yuan and the largest injection of short-term cash to the financial system since February. The measures come as the onshore yuan fell towards its weakest level in 16 years against the dollar. It's trading 0.2% weaker at 7.2981 in Shanghai. And disappointing Chinese economic activity figures for July and the suspension of the publication of youth unemployment rate data dented sentiment in Hong Kong. Shares there fell for the fourth session in a row. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 252 points or 1.4% to a two and a half month low of 18,329. The Hang Seng Index is down almost 19% from its January 27th high, pushing it closer to a technical bear market. The Hang Seng China Enterprise Index, which tracks the largest mainland companies listed in the city, was down 1.5% and has plunged 9% so far this month to become the worst performer among 92 global equity gauges. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.8% at 3,150, sliding for the fourth consecutive session, despite the PBOC cutting a key policy rate by 15 basis points. And Bloomberg sources reported that China has asked some mainland funds to avoid net equity sales as the market sinks. Doesn't look like that's going to help this morning, though, because futures markets are pointing to a further decline for the Hang Seng Index of about 300 points. That's 1.6% at the open. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning, let's welcome our regular Thursday commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, Nick Marrow, who is lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Very good morning to you, Nick. Good morning, Peter. Minutes from the Federal Reserve's last two-day meeting in July show policymakers concerned about the pace of inflation and indicating more rate hikes could be necessary in the future unless conditions change. Minutes from the FOMC's latest meeting showed officials unanimously backing the 25 basis point rate hike and policymakers stressed that there are upside risks to inflation that could warrant further monetary tightening. However, some members expressed some uncertainty over the extent of transmission lags, raising caution against over-tightening. Um, Andrew, I suspect this doesn't come as a surprise to you because on this show you've consistently said the markets are getting it wrong in assuming that uh, we've reached a peak in, in, uh, in interest rates and that there's going to be some cuts next year. You've been saying quite consistently that's not correct. I suspect there's nothing here that changes your mind. Uh, yes, to the extent that they, they, they repeat it rather boringly that uh, uh, they, the data are not yet uh, where they want them to be in terms of a consistent decline in inflation. And uh, it was a little bit of a, of a blah, blah. But, okay, uh, I keep going back to what Powell said, not in the last, in the previous to last meeting, that he just can't see inflation uh, steady at uh, 2% until 2025. That's very chilling. I'm not saying that that was his forecast, but uh, clearly he was pointing out that uh, they are not going to relax not this year and not next year. 
This, this data, though, did come out before we had the last set of uh, inflation data. Uh, sorry, then the minutes came out before, or the meeting took place before we had the last set of inflation data, which did show that inflation is coming down, didn't it? So do you think that well, maybe... Yeah, actually, Peter, you know, I've got my Bloomberg screen in front of me. And uh, very frequently you find comments, even in Bloomberg, that just don't reflect at all, at least what the numbers are telling me. Okay, CPI year on year, okay, the last number was was July, was 3.2, and in June it was 3. So Mm. it went up, not down. Okay, so, uh, of course, the previous three or four months was from 5 to 4.9 to 4%. Wow, then to 3, then up to 3.2. All this is meaningless because you will need to have minimum six months Okay, continuous numbers, all of them establishing a very firm trend. So to tell you that inflation is accelerating again, it's nonsense. But to tell you that inflation has now is falling permanently is equally nonsense. Mm. Okay, it did fall for a couple of months and then went up again. I'm sorry, it sounds like an economist. God, I hate this first thing <laughs> in the morning. But but well, there you go. You yeah, know? I hate to point out, but you are an economist, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Nick- so very briefly, yes. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that they say the the trend is just not there, and if necessary, we will go for another 25 basis point. Full stop. Nick, the, the markets are in some state of confusion, aren't they, at the moment, about where we are in the economic cycle? Um, have we peaked or not in, in interest rates? Is inflation coming down, or is it still too high? What, what, what can you tell us? What, what are you seeing from, from the data? Because we're getting a lot of mixed messages at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, well, I think mixed messages is definitely um, the right way to, to phrase it. I mean, if we think about where we were around this time last year in terms of trying to forecast what was happening with inflation and, you know, the, the rate movements, um, inflation has consistently surprised on the upside. Um, and this has been despite uh, the Federal Reserve uh, doing all it can to kind of bring price pressures down rather rather unsuccessfully. Um I mean, I think it is encouraging in the sense that, uh, you know, we're no longer at the peaks of where we've seen price pressures just a couple quarters ago. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with Andrew. I mean, um, the story for so long has been, uh, you know, what's it going to take for the Fed to bring prices down without plunging the economy into a really bad state? Can they thread the needle uh, by, you know, doing this without torpedoing U.S. growth. I think on balance, the Fed has really positively surprised all of us. Um, we're st- still seeing really resilient uh, activity in the U.S. economy, despite the tightening in credit conditions. I think the real worrisome aspect of this is, again, kind of what Andrew said, that, that six-month transmission in terms of monetary policy and the delayed effect that all of this could have on future consumption and investment activity um and so the story around growth particularly is a bit more worrisome when we maybe look at 2024 in the early part of that year um but yeah i mean just to sum up um this continued kind of upside surprises upside risks that we're seeing in inflation data i'm still a bit worried that we're not yet seeing a trend of moderation Mm. But isn't isn't the problem, though, that the Fed so far, it has got inflation down to around 3% without plunging the economy um, into recession. So the Fed can take a bow there because a a lot of people didn't think that was possible. But if the Fed is going to insist that it's got to come down further and get to 2%, then it looks like there's going to be a whole lot more of pain to come, isn't there? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, and I'll personally have to give them credit because remember a couple, I don't know, maybe several months ago, 
uh, you know, on the show, we were discussing um, the difficulties in terms of the Fed being able to do this. And I was quite pessimistic in terms of them avoiding, um, you know, a technical recession. And they've done it. I mean, at least, you know, if, if the data the, the data shows that they've done it. Um, mm-hmm. And that is something which is quite admirable. Um, I, I would say that the one encouraging aspect of this is at least in month on month terms, we have seen a declining trend since um, at least earlier this year. Um, so that's one positive, you know, sliver of news that we can hold on to. Um, but at the end of the day, we've just seen so many surprises over the past couple of quarters um, that I'm still holding my breath. Okay. Well, Andrew, the, the issue seems to be actually, rather than having a soft landing, the, the US economy is actually gaining uh, quite significantly uh, in, in this quarter, yeah. quarter. If you look at yeah. the Atlanta Now G- GDP Now tracker, which basically adds all the latest in economic data as it comes out into its model and tries to project what GDP is going to be. It's saying basically for the third quarter, US GDP is going to be 5.8%. It's got revised up twice now in the last couple of days after we had the retail sales data and then last night the industrial production and housing starts data. It looks like the economy is actually accelerating, doesn't it? Well, uh, or do you not believe this? No, it's not a matter of not believing it. Just, just. I'm sorry, it's so boring quoting numbers, but it is important. Unfortunately, that's the only thing we have. If I was to take the last four quarters, okay, of GDP growth in the States, and these are the usual utterly meaningless quarter on quarter annualized. I'm sorry, it's my pet hate. But anyway, there you are, quarter on quarter annualized. It went 2.4, 2, 2.6, 3.2. Well, the last three quarters is accelerating from 2 to 2.6 to 3.2. It's doing very nicely. Whether it's going to hit 5, I, I have no idea. I don't know how the, the GN uh, numbers are, are compiled and how they extrapolate to a 5% uh, increase. That, uh, that sounds a little bit uh, uh, exaggerated. Equally, I will point, go back <clears throat> To uh, if I was to go back six quarters back before, we had two quarters back on back negative. In other words, we did have a technical recession. So I'm simply keeping the last four quarters. Okay, it is doing very nicely. Thank you. And I would not be surprised that if it accelerates again, okay, on uh, on the third quarter. Sorry, yeah. on the on the third quarter. Yeah. Yep. So, so Nick, um, if we look at this, I mean, we've had now, if uh, if we look at this data, it's going to be basically the fifth consecutive quarter that the US economy has grown by at least a 2% annualized rate, regardless of whether we want to buy into the Atlanta Fed's GDP now tracker of 5.8%. Nevertheless, um, the, the, the US economy is clearly accelerating despite these rate rises. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going to echo Andrew here and saying how much I hate how the U.S. does this annualized calculation. Um, one of the things that we try and do is calculate out kind of the traditional year on year or quarter on quarter, like uh, individualized quarterly growth rates. And if we do that, um, we're actually still expecting a deceleration, um, both in Q and Q and year on year numbers for Q3 and Q4. Um, at the same time, these numbers are still positive. Um we have been consistently revising up our own forecasts uh, for how the U.S. economy is expected to perform. Mm. Um, I think the implications of this more globally, to move away from the numbers, um, are still uh, concerning in certain ways. Um, clearly, the resilience that we've seen in the U.S. economy has not translated to strong trade flows coming out of Asia, for example, and that's been 
kind of a depressing factor for most of 2023 for a lot of East Asian economies. Um, and so there's a bit of a disconnect here between growth in the West and growth in Asia. A lot of that's tied to inventory, destocking, etc. Um, so the implications of this, I think, are still pretty nuanced. But there's a, the broadly positive takeaway from this is, yeah, um, you know, growth is in a much better place now than people were kind of doom forecasting a couple of quarters ago. And then what can we do about the, 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 the trade out of Asia? You mentioned that that's been pretty grim. I mean, if you look at the figures that we've seen out of South Korea, out of Taiwan, um, it hasn't been very good, has it? I noticed the Korean government, the South Korean government yesterday announced more measures to try and help um, exporters to try and, you know, um, export to new areas and in new um, sort of sectors. But um, what can we do? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think when you look at these policy measures coming out of these governments like South Korea or Taiwan or even China, a lot of what those governments focus on is on the supply side. Um, so trying to assist their own producers and manufacturers and cushion them from the fallout. These governments have very limited recourse to actually create demand in their overseas markets. I mean, what South Korea does isn't necessarily going to lead to an increase in consumer spending behavior or investment purchasing behavior in the U.S. or the EU, for example. Um, and really, this story is tied to uh, very high levels of inventory stocks. Uh, we're starting to see a destocking in, in some major economies, which should help the trade picture later on. But that's been somewhat of a separate narrative to what's going on with the overall growth picture, which is why I mentioned before that this resilience in, say, the U.S. hasn't really translated into um, firmer trade activity coming out of East Asia. Um, and the second thing is really what's happening in the global electronics downturn. Um, we're still seeing really sustained pressure um, coming out of, say, electronics demand uh, in ways that are going to have implications for Taiwan and South Korea, parts of China's export basket, Japan. That's really tied to kind of this normalization um, in life uh, post-pandemic, but also the fact that I think the supply chain shortages that we saw last year really drove a lot of companies in particular to just fill up their inventory stocks and make sure that they have enough products on hand to avoid repeating another shock to their supply chains, shock to their uh, mm. other inputs of their various stocks. Um, we're not expecting this uh, scenario to materially start to improve until the end of this year, beginning of 2024. And that suggests that even with the more positive growth rates and growth headlines that we're seeing out of the U.S. and other Western markets, um, there's not really going to be necessarily that much of a, a firm translation or pass through to us in Asia. Andrew, what, what do you think about this? The, the, the accelerating U.S. economy, as Nick says, isn't really benefiting Asia that much, certainly not in terms of trade anyway. Is this because um, maybe partly American consumers are just not buying as many goods as they used to? They're spending their money on going out to restaurants and flying around the country and going to the cinema rather than actually buying sort of tradable goods. Um, the answer is has to be a, a rather mixed yes. If we were simply were to look at uh, the export performance of the major exporters in Asia, okay, including China, of course, that they, they have been going down, the, the, the rate of growth on a year-to-year -year basis is decelerating. The same thing, of course, with, uh, with South Korea, the same, of course, the thing with, uh, with Hong Kong. And poor Hong Kong is reflecting not only the performance, because Hong Kong doesn't export anything. Hong Kong re-exports everything. And uh, that simply is a, is a nice way of pulse-taking uh, to the extent of what is happening in the overall re-export trade in Asia, because Hong Kong doesn't only re-export Chinese goods, it also re-exports quite a lot of Asian goods. Mm. All of those 
are pointing downwards. Now, whom they are re-exporting all these things to? The answer is, if they were doing it to each other, then uh, one should have expected that overall their exports would be going up. And the answer is they are not, because exports to the United States has been declining. The same thing with, uh, with German exports to, to, to the U.S. So what we're looking at, we're looking not only exports to each other, but also exports to everybody else, okay, has been going down. Not exactly a Nobel Prize winning uh, <laughs> conclusion into that. And the reason for that, of course, is twofold. One is, is that uh, consumers, particularly in the major consuming countries like China, are spending a lot more inwards rather than outwards. And I'm absolutely fascinated what is happening with the tourist trade in China. China used to be possibly the second biggest tourist country in the world, the second being the United States, not forgetting that the United States, the tourist sector, is overwhelmingly inward-looking. In other words, the Americans spend their holidays in the States. Mm. And now the Chinese are beginning to do this. And poor Hong Kong is finding this out. You might say, what this has to do with exports? A great deal, because tourism is another form of exporting. Okay, so this is another nice pulse taken by saying people are spending less. And it's not just anecdotal, even if you were to take in the export performance. Yes, they're spending less because they're spending a lot more at home. Okay, well, one other aspect of this before we move on to uh, to China in particular of... Um of the Fed minutes and, and the strength of the U.S. economy, the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield um, rose above four and a quarter percent last night. Currently trading at four point two six percent. The the 10-year yield since the financial crisis has never traded subs- uh, for a long period of time above four percent. But we now seem to have got that as a floor. We've got to get used to this 10-year yield now being above four percent. Maybe going to go um, even higher. In effect, this 15 years of low interest rates that we've been seeing is is over. That's going to have some big impacts, isn't it, on investment flows, um, on trade flows as well, of course, and, and on the market, sir, Nick? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think if we try and extrapolate and look at what's happening in investments, um, that's, that's really what I've been trying to do for the last week or so. One data point that caught my eye, I think it was last week, was how at least on a balance of payments basis, inbound investment to China has fallen to its lowest level in absolute terms on record. And I think mm-hmm. that was over the second quarter of 2023. Uh, and I think in year-on-year growth terms, it was a collapse of around like 87% or something like that. Um, one of the things that we're looking at here and why it's relevant to this conversation is you have the geopolitical risk story, the diversification story, the China plus one into ASEAN story, but also in home markets now, borrowing costs are just incredibly expensive. Um, and we're trying to understand is what we're trying to understand now is is this a story just around diversifying from China or is there a fuller kind of global pullback in investment activity and FDI flows in ways that actually have consequences for China's neighbors as well? Um, and based on some of the kind of initial data that we're seeing from other Asian markets, it looks like that this is very reflective of. Um, kind of reduced appetite for borrowing um, and consequently uh, reduced space to, you know, expand or engage in new types of investments. And so I think, you know, with borrowing costs now at, you know, this decade plus high, this is really going to usher in somewhat of a transformative change into how business operates and how consumers, well, I mean, people have been talking about how this can affect consumption and with the inflation numbers, maybe not, um, but at least how businesses kind of approach their strategies and how they look at kind of investment moving forward. And I think this is somewhat uncharted territory, at least for, you know, the last 15 years, given that we have not really been in this high interest environment for a long time. 
Andrew, how significant do you see this, this bear, what they call the bear steepening of uh, the US Treasury yield curve, where rates are going up, but going up even faster at the long end? This is, in effect, is uh, sort of reversing the inversion of the yield curve, but it changes a lot of things, doesn't it? Businesses, individuals who have their mortgages linked to the 10-year rate are going to have to get used to now periods, longer periods of much higher rates. Do you think um, they're ready for that? Also, very uh, well. God knows, you know. Knock on their door and says, "Excuse me, ma'am. Do you appreciate that the yields are up?" Like, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had, I had gold. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I'm sound almost patronizing. Look, uh, I'm I'm a simple guy, and I like simple things. In general, uh, long-term uh, real interest rates tend to match tend to match long-term GDP growth. So if the GDP growth is sort of a two-ish, okay, and uh, you have uh, uh, nominal uh, yields at about four and a half, and you are having inflation at about 3%, subtract one from the other, and you are sort of beginning to get near the 2%. Not quite yet. Okay, mm-hmm. it is still real. Long-term interest rates are perhaps at about 1. Uh, 1.5, 1.6%. So, yes, I prefer to stick to that, and I will say once we hit approximately the 2% real interest rates at the same time that the economy is growing at 2%, Okay, then this is a very steady, long-term kind of uh, behavior that uh, economies are known to hit. Although, mind you, there is nothing to trade in that. I could not possibly use it as a forecast because, of course, it depends which yield I'm using, depends which interest rates, uh, which uh, um, uh, CPI numbers I'm using. And I'm using simple stuff, the 4% and the CPI inflation. And it is getting where I think it should be. Mm. So the answer is, is yes. Okay, the reality is that uh, once we've moved away from the 2008-2009 uh, of zero interest rates, uh, that has been, that has been the, the end of zero interest rates. God, what amazingly incisive news I'm bringing to your listeners, poor Peter, <laughs> and that we have stopped having low interest rates. The Fed has been increasing as if there's no tomorrow for 12 months. <laughs> now, Andrew is telling us interest rates are going up. Really? As the, America, as the Americans say, really? Okay. <laughs> Except the markets, when, when you say the markets, some people in the markets do seem to be surprised. They're being taken surprise by surprise by this rise in, uh, in, in bond yields, certainly. But, um, you know, as, as we've just been saying, this is, this is not a short-term phenomenon, is it? It's something we're going to have to get used to for a longer period of time. Let, let me switch to China because I want to get your thoughts on the economic data that we've seen um, this week. Nick, I mean, it was pretty horrible, wasn't it? Retail sales posted the slowest growth uh, since December, up 2.5%. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, I think it was back in April where retail sales were going up about 14% year on year. Industrial production down, fixed asset investment down, investment in the property sector uh, down as well. And we don't even know what's going on in the employment market because the National Bureau of Statistics cancelled the release of the, the youth unemployment data. But overall, um, it's not looking pretty, not looking that good, is it? Yeah, right. And I guess, I mean, there are three points that I would raise. One, I mean, to kind of echo what Andrew's been saying, um, none of this is super surprising to people who have been paying attention to the market. Um, I think people have come to terms with the fact that the rebound from COVID has really underwhelmed expectations. And with all of the structural factors and structural shocks from the pandemic, say, you know, you know, disruptions to income and job creation and 
you know, various industry campaigns, whatever. The outlook has been pretty bleak for a while. Um, I think it, it's been bleaker in the data prints um, than people were anticipating. So that's definitely noteworthy. Um, but I think people are really reassessing um, kind of the outlook for the Chinese economy right now, seeing, you know, slashing growth forecasts across mm -hmm. the board, which makes sense. Um, and that's that's always kind of people respecting this. Um, but the second thing, um, which I'd want to highlight really quickly, is that with the retail data, the one upside to this is that it doesn't necessarily capture what's happening with tourism. Um, so international tourism from China has still been really in the doldrums, but domestic tourism has been pretty strong. Um, and if we use retail sales as a proxy for overall consumption, we have to be a little bit careful in the sense that you know, the retail sales only capturing only capture goods purchases and catering. They don't capture tourism expenditure, and that could provide a little bit of an upside surprise to um, kind of the consumer landscape. But I want to caveat that saying, like, even with the even if we do see strong tourism numbers, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate to headline really strong headline uh, consumer performance. So the third thing, though, which I'll end on is. You mentioned the unemployment data being discontinued. Um, and I think this is really part of a broader signal that we're seeing from Beijing about how authorities are growing increasingly worried about the economy. I mean, policymakers, or excuse me, officials really only discontinue data series um, when the data series look problematic. Yeah. Um, and particularly in the last couple of years, um, information opacity has increased um, as the economy has worsened and officials want to kind of dilute um, transparency over what's, what's going on. That's worrisome. Um, I mean, this is the second largest economy in the world. Um, people need to know what's going on. And even though the youth unemployment figures um, have commanded a lot of attention, maybe a bit disproportionate amount of attention vis-a-vis -vis other parts of the economy, they were still a useful proxy in terms of what policymaker priorities were, what that might mean for future policy support measures, um, you know, what this could mean for official anxieties around new graduates entering the market. The fact that they've decided to discontinue that speaks more towards that anxiety and that clamp on information than it does to reassure investors that things are going okay. And I would say that as a result, the near-term outlook is pretty challenging, even if we assume that GDP growth is still going to be above the 5% target this year. At the end of the day, what does that mean? I mean, if, if the numbers are still positive, but companies aren't getting good returns, people can't find jobs, uh, you know, imports are still cratering, meaning that China's ability to, um, you know, contribute to global demand has, has really fallen back. All of that is somewhat inconsequential at the end of the day. Okay. I mean, Andrew, can I get your thoughts on this, on the, the, um, the news to discontinue the youth unemployment data, which was already at a record high, over 21% last month. We can only assume, I suppose, that it was going to be another record high. But what are your thoughts on that? And, and in particular, the yeah, impact on is, foreign investors, what they would think about this. Well, this was, this was incredibly unfortunate. I mean, the timing was, uh, was really extremely poor, even if they say that it is due to demographic reasons. Well, you know, you can carry on publishing it, saying, uh, mm. take that with a huge piece of salt, okay, and we are working on something else, as opposed to simply saying, these statistics look terrible, we're going to discontinue them. Come on, it, I, I don't think for one moment they meant that. Look, however, the one for me, which again has been massively misquoted in the markets, is uh, the year-on-year uh, -year number of uh, new home prices in 70 cities. And this has been going down Take a deep breath for 16 continuous months. 
I mean, if that doesn't doesn't put you uh, in a in a pretty lethal mood, I don't know what will. Given also, of course, that the property sector is packed with good news. <laughs> Everybody right, left, right, right, left, and center is in inverted commas defaulting or threatening to default. This is this is pretty bad. And also, Peter, the retail sector is again very much distorted of what we are seeing by the friend of the economist, the low base effect. I don't know what we will do without it. Okay, April, April and May were spectacular because they were year on year on negatives. Then, of course, June and July uh, were much, much lower because they were on positives. And, of course, July came down to 2.5. So take a deep breath. We had April, 18.4%, May, 12.7%, June, 3.1%, July, uh, never mind, we won't talk about it, 2.5%. That is a distorted number, okay? In other words, the retail sales, okay, have not really been improving. So this is not really, really uh, uh, good or bad news, mm. okay? These are bad news of a, of a long-time trend. And then, of course, we have the GDP numbers, that, uh, uh, well, nothing sort of spectacular, particularly the second quarter at 6.3%. And, uh, well, I suspect the fourth quarter ain't going to be as good as that if consumption continues uh, to, to, to be going down and, of course, investment. And then we may just end up with China growing at 5% to their utter disbelief okay, of the stock markets, and then also to the utter indifference of the stock markets because they keep going down. Remember, GDP growth is backwards-looking and traditionally was never a very good proxy for telling you where the stock markets are going. Mm -hmm. And most definitely, it's doing that with China. The stock markets are going down and the GDP is going up. Okay. Nick, final quick comment from you on, on this housing data. Let me quote you the number. Um, new home prices declined 2.5% month on month on a seasonally adjusted annualised basis. Andrew would love that statistic. No idea how you get to a, a month on month seasonally adjusted annualised basis. But nevertheless, new home prices down 2.5%, even worse in third and fourth tier cities where the drops were 3.9% and 3.3%. Must emphasise, of course, that's a seasonally adjusted annualized basis and um, nick a, a quick comment from you on on this because think this is where country garden isn't it i mean country garden operates mainly in these third and fourth tier cities things don't, are not don't do good. that nick don't do that nick he's leading you on don't do it <laughs> yeah i mean one thing that we've been really worried about since uh zero covid ended in december last year was this discrepancy that we'd see between kind of the first and second tier cities and the third and fourth tier cities. And so that's what I'll focus my comments on. I mean, we've been pretty pessimistic on the growth prospects for these smaller, poorer Chinese kind of urban centers, as well as the, the poorer, smaller provinces uh, in China as well. And that's really maybe the big macro narrative we're looking at, this kind of sustained and deepening divergence between kind of China's wealthier, bigger cities and its smaller, poorer cousins. I mean, these are that, and that's going to be one of the big issues in the property sector as well. Given that a lot of the connectivity over the last decade um, in these smaller cities was tied to property, um, and that has consequences for developer financing, um, you know, financial risk attached to the local financial sector because of their exposure to these property giants who are all now struggling to keep their head above water. Um, I mean, that's that's really the one of the big stories here. Looking at the outlook. Um, we've been pessimistic about property for, for quite some time. Um, the, the numbers that we're seeing seasonally annually adjusted, I think, reflect officials trying to grasp with desperation any 
sliver of good news that they might be able to translate out to the market, but the market doesn't really seem to be having it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think we can expect to see any type of real turnaround in the property narrative anytime soon. Okay, well, thank you both very much. That's Nick Merrow, Lead for Global Trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Oil prices were choppy on Wednesday, but ultimately lower as trader weighed concerns over China's sputtering economy against a bigger than expected draw in US inventories. Joining me now to discuss the trends going on in the oil markets is Vandana Hari, founder of Vandu Insights. Morning, Vandana. Good morning, Peter. Um, it's been a, a pretty good sort of time for the oil market since what? Since about mid-June, wasn't it? We've seen a, quite a decent sort of rally, although the last few days it seems to have sort of come off at the moment. But lots of conflicting things going on in the oil markets at the moment with, with China, uh, with uh, the Saudi Arabia production cuts and, and so on. Um, what do you see as being the main factors we should be looking at right now? Yeah, so over the past uh, six to eight weeks, uh, two main themes have dominated the oil markets, uh, both of them being very price supportive factors. Uh, One was, of of course, the OPEC, non-OPEC cuts, uh, production cuts, and these are, just to put them in context, uh, the deepest cuts that the alliance has made uh, since May 2020, which was at the height of uh, the demand crash uh, caused by COVID. And uh, these cuts uh, have begun to bite. Uh, Supply in the physical markets has tightened. So uh, that is always uh, a supportive factor for for crude. The other one, and probably a a bigger one, was uh, the optimism over the U.S. economy, over the the soft landing narrative uh, that um, became quite embedded and, and entrenched in the markets. Now, it's the second one, I think, which is more uh, volatile and um, you know susceptible to revision. Uh, investors may just change their minds over you know what they expect the Fed to do, how inflation uh, is expected to shape up, and so on. And that's what we saw last night as well. A uh, little bit of a wobble in that optimism, which pulled prices down. And why is Saudi Arabia doing these cuts? Because it, it's sort of gone on, it's almost gone out on a limb, hasn't it, on its own to do these, uh, to do these production cuts. Um, why now? Why is it doing it now? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a short-term factor and, and a longer-term one here at play. Uh, one is, of course, uh, the vast majority of OPEC Plus members um, do want uh, prices uh, at a higher level simply to balance their budgets. And let us not forget, they uh, made major losses. And, you know, some of these, like Saudi Arabia, the sovereign wealth funds uh, suffered quite a bit as well uh, over the two COVID years, shall we say, 2020 and 2021. So they need to recoup that. Uh, longer term, there is this uh, deep-rooted fear now amongst major producers and exporters that they do not have much runway. Uh, you know, as the world transitions away from fossil fuels, they may end up sitting on stranded resources, you know, just having to leave their oil and gas molecules in the ground. So they are trying to extract as much, uh, monetize it and extract as much profit out of it uh, as they can. Uh, for the time being. So where do they want to get oil prices to? At what level will they be happy and, and say to themselves, we don't need any more production cuts? 
You know, so um, the de facto leader, which is Saudi Arabia of, of the OPEC Plus Alliance, and even if you talk to other other ministers of the other member countries, they always are at pains to distance themselves from any price targets. But so it's it's some something of a guesswork within the market always. But um, initially, when they began cutting earlier this year. Uh, the idea was that they were trying to put a floor at around $70 per barrel for Brent. Uh, I think that's the the level they would still try to defend. Of course, prices have been way above that. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, it was what they hadn't probably expected was this uh, major uh, uptick in, in sentiment over the U.S. economy, which became uh, a, a tailwind for oil prices. But uh, I think uh, above 80, of course, they are even happier to have prices at those levels. But they will definitely try and defend at least $70 a barrel if it comes to that again. Mm. I mean, it did sink, when it, to about 68 in uh, in June. And then we've seen this sharp rally in the oil prices. And Saudi Arabia has extended these production cuts by another month. Presumably, they could carry on doing this month after month. So if it isn't a particular price target, what is it that's going to stop them eventually from in- just extending these production cuts? At what point will they say, OK, this is enough? Yeah, that's a great question. I would think that uh, they would uh, step back, and especially Saudi Arabia with its incremental cut that you're referring to, uh, which has been, you know, especially hawkish uh, move by the kingdom. If if they if there were signs of um, and a much worse economic slowdown, shall we say, at least in the in the major economies, um, or a recession. I think they wouldn't want to try and sustain prices at, let's say, high $80 a barrel or even 90 uh, while the world is spiraling into a recession. So I think that would stop them. But but short of that, as long as there is demand, as long as uh, consumer countries, importing countries are willing to pay, uh, I think there's really nothing to deter them from trying to keep markets very tightly balanced. Mm. And you mentioned the U.S. economy. If we, if we look at the U.S. economy and the impact on the oil price, we've got, first of all, the 10-year bond yield now persistently above 4%, at 4.25% um, last night. So rates are clearly going up. But at the same time, the economy seems to be improving as well. We had great uh, retail sales data, industrial production data last night. Uh, the housing starts numbers were good. So the Atlanta Fed is now predicting 5.8% growth um, in, the, uh, in the third quarter. I mean, this would be astonishing. But presumably, if we were to see that, or even anything like that, uh, that's going to be another big factor on the oil price. Absolutely. I think the jury is still out on exactly what sort of landing uh, the U.S. economy uh, sees, uh, yeah, you know, whether recession, what what degree of recession and, and so on. But on a day-to-day short-term basis, uh, what happens in the oil complex typically is simply tracking the risk appetite in the broader financial markets, which in turn uh, of course, is guided by what investors are betting in terms of uh, the U.S. economic outlook, of course, but uh, the subset of that is what the Fed is expected to do, what inflation is expected to do. Now, I, I suppose it was um, understandable that, you know, inflation coming down quite sharply, and as you've just mentioned, the U.S. economy on quite a few metrics has been quite resilient my problem with this whole uh, narrative uh, defining the sentiment in the oil complex is that yes the us is the biggest oil consumer but it's not really the consumer uh, 
or, or the growth factor at the margin for the oil markets, it's China and, and broadly Asia. Mm. Uh, so the oil market for quite some time now over the past several weeks has actually uh, just completely discounted the uh, slowdown in China, you know, the, the biggest uh, contributor of growth uh, in terms of uh, energy demand uh, and the slowdown in Europe as well. You know, it has been too focused uh, on the U.S. So I guess it was time for a correction and maybe that's what we are seeing now. Mm, and um, presumably the data showing crude stockpiles falling more than more than expected as well. That's another factor, isn't it, that's, that's supporting the, uh, the oil price? You notice that was uh, a little bit of quite a bit on the periphery of the market yesterday, not surprisingly again. Uh, that has been the case. Uh, the, the, the weekly data uh, on U.S. stockpiles that you're referring to uh, is traditionally uh, a, a major factor in how uh, in, in impacting price movements. But it has uh, been a little bit uh, on the sidelines because, uh, you know, I think it's more the economy uh, the outlook over the economy, uh, the U.S. definitely, but also what is happening in China and to some extent uh, Europe and OPEC plus cuts. I think the market has been just very focused on these factors. So I wouldn't expect the U.S. stockpile changes uh, to to come back center stage anytime soon. Do, do you think you mentioned China? Do you think China is going to become more an is, of an issue for the oil markets? Because the data we're seeing, the economic data out of China is pretty grim, isn't it? So it would suggest quite a strong, quite a sharp slowdown in the Chinese economy. We've got major investment banks now revising down their forecasts for, uh, for GDP growth. But as you say, the market, the oil markets anyway, seem to have ignored it so far. But do you think that's going to change? Yeah. Indeed, very dark clouds over the Chinese economy and uh, some in the oil market, or probably more the consensus view, I would think, is that uh, the economy will pick up steam. Uh, earlier, it was uh, believed to happen in the second half. Now, some people have pushed it back to, you know, fourth quarter of this year. I am not in that camp, uh, you know, having looked at China quite closely over the past decades, uh, you know, sitting here in Asia and Singapore. Uh, you know, I can see very deep systemic and structural issues in the economy, uh, which which point to a very, very slow recovery. So perhaps in terms of its oil demand uh, rebounding, you know, that's a word I would use very carefully, probably well into 2024. Uh, so I don't see that happening any anytime soon. Um, so, you know, I think that ought to weigh on uh, oil prices. The probably uh, it didn't in the in the past few weeks as we saw crude prices spiral up to multi-month highs was probably because uh, it had been gradually factored in. So if you look back right to you know March April this year, we have had a very sustained uh, disappointing data from China. So, so to a large extent, I think that. Uh, is baked in as par for the course uh, in the oil prices. Well, we've mentioned the two largest um, crude oil importers. What about the world's third largest crude oil importer, which is India these days? When we last spoke, we talked about a bit about India, doesn't it? Is it still an important market now, particularly for, for Russian oil, because they've been big buyers of that, haven't they? Yes, Indian uh, economy has been doing very well. Uh, yeah, I guess a, a major uh, point of distinction is, uh, like, unlike China, it is not too dependent on the overseas markets and exports. Indian exports have taken a, a double-digit tumble as well, but nobody talks about it as, as one does of uh, you know, Chinese exports, for instance, declining by nearly 15%, because Indian economy is more sustained by uh, domestic demand. 
So uh, it's doing well. Indian oil demand uh, is also growing at, at quite a healthy clip. But uh, again, it is a bit marginal when it comes to talking about the global oil uh, supply demand balances because uh, it is the third largest consumer, but uh, consumes just about a third of what China consumes, for instance, and about a fourth of what the U.S. consumes. So um, it's there. It's it you know it. The oil market participants keep a close eye on it, but uh, it doesn't really impact uh, your outlook when you are trying to weigh global oil supply demand balances. Fanda, thanks, thanks very much for joining the program this morning. Always good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Peter. That's Vandal Nahari, who is founder of Vanda Insights. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Money Talk. I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Christopher Lee, partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. With a view from Australia and New Zealand is Mike Gibbs-Harris, director of MGH Asset Management in Wellington, New Zealand. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.